Hi all, it's Isabel here. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. This decision, and the subsequent decisions that will be made after something as disastrous as this, will actively affect millions of Americans all across the country. It's time for us to be brave and speak out for those who can't, those we love, and for ourselves. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. And a big shout out to Ariel Nissenblatt on Twitter at Ari This and That for organizing this for fellow podcasters. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Hello, everyone. This is Isabel Cortez, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stories for the Soul. Isn't it fun learning about demons that have a bit of understanding behind them? Demons that might make you think, hey, they don't seem all that bad. I mean, Pazuzu protects pregnant ladies, and Lilith decided that she would rather be a demon than stay married to a misogynistic naked man. They can't be 100% awful, right? On paper, they don't seem that bad. I mean, they're bad, but maybe it's a passable bad. A bad that convinces us that as long as we don't get in their way, there's no reason for us to hate them. And with that being said, do you know what else is fun? Learning about demons who are just awful. Demons who are rotten to their core and exemplify every wrong and grotesque thing in the universe. They are evil because they want to be, and they do horrible things because they want to. One name comes to mind when I think of these things, when I hear the word rotten, and that's Druj Nasu, the demoness of Zoroastrianism. Druj Nasu is what nightmares are made of. And not just your nightmares, but your friends' nightmares, and your family's nightmares, and pretty much the nightmares of every single person alive on Earth. You see, the one thing about demons is that they attack certain things or people or places. Maybe they'll wait until nightfall and attack those who are afraid of the dark. Or maybe they'll attack the greedy and unkind and leave those who do not have those less than virtuistic characteristics unharmed. Every demon has their niche. They have their favorite kind of people to haunt and torment. But Druj Nasu is universal. She'll attack anyone. And do you know why? Because there's one thing that everyone on this planet has in common. One thing that we all collectively do, and that's die. Druj Nasu is a demon that attacks you in death and stops you from achieving a pure and peaceful slumber. In the Avastan language, the word Druj has a double meaning. The first is falsehood, pertaining to people or things that are dishonest and untrustworthy. And the second is demoness. And this is why it is often used as a prefix for the demon Nasu, 
as well as other female demons that are mentioned in great detail in a collection of texts known as the Vendidad. The word Vendidad is derived from the Avastan language contraction V Devodata, or given against the devas, or demons. It's appropriately named because the book is an enumeration of various manifestations of evil spirits and the ways in which to confuse or defeat them. Nasu is one of the most infamous of the demons mentioned since her name literally translates to corpse matter. Nasu is the greatest defiler in the world of Ahura Mazda, the god of Zoroastrianism. The Vendidad states that once a person loses consciousness and they've released their last breath of life, thus expelling their soul, Nasu rushes upon the body and generates pollution from its dying matter. She contaminates every inch of the body and will more than gladly contaminate any living person that comes into physical contact with the corpse. The Dedistan i Denning is a Pallavi work written by the Zoroastrian high priest Manushir, and in it he details Nasu's exploits. The text reads, quote, When Nasu becomes triumphant over the soul of a righteous man and drives it out from the body, she makes a place for herself in it. Then the body for that reason is called a corpse. End quote. You see, the word Nasa refers to a defiled corpse, or really any other dead matter like nails or hair. A dead person isn't considered a corpse when they die. They're more like an empty shell that once contained a soul. A corpse becomes a corpse when Nasu gets her grubby little hands on it. So what exactly is Nasu? I mean, we know she's a demon, but what kind is she? Some demons have horns, some have giant teeth, and others have a billion eyes. But not Nasu. Our demoness of the hour reportedly flies around looking for dead people to contaminate in the shape of a giant fly. She has crooked knees and her buttocks and tail project outward while she dribbles toxic saliva everywhere. The sound of her flapping wings is incessant and in Vendidad 7-2, the sound is described as droning without end. Most of us have a rational hatred for flies. They buzz around obnoxiously, landing on everything and everyone. They have the incredible talent of being everywhere all the time and then fucking right off just in time to not be murdered by a fly swatter. If you think it's gross when a fly lands on your food or on your drink, imagine Nasu, a giant, crooked-kneed, saliva-dripping fly landing in the body of your grandmother or your best friend and making herself right at home. It's a disgusting visual, isn't it? Imagine her flying around inside the body of your loved one getting saliva everywhere. Barf. Nasu's power of desecration is actually directly responsible for the Zoroastrian hatred for all things dead. Several rituals and spells have been created for the sole purpose of protecting the living and the dead from the filthy hands of Nasu. 
let's talk about what the Zoroastrians believe you can do to help protect your dearly departed loved ones before and after Nisu buzzes on over and ruins the day. It's believed that the second that Nasu takes hold of a dead body, it instantly becomes contaminated. So it's important to take some precautionary steps while you're still alive. There's a prayer called the Sros Baj, which can be recited daily in honor of the deity Sraosa in the hopes of protecting oneself against decay and death. Sraosa is a major deity in Zoroastrianism, so it would make sense to pray to someone as powerful as him. The prayer is also referred to as the Baj-i-Nashust, or the utterance against pollution. Everybody dies, so there's not much that can be done about that. But the prayer itself is supposed to protect against Nasu upon the moment of death. It's like applying enough bug spray every day so that there's always a small cloud of it surrounding you. And then when you die, you have enough of it lingering around to shoo Nasu away. Now, let's talk about something uh, a little bit more taboo. Let's say someone dies and Nasu manages to take over that poor person's body. What can be done then? According to the Vendidad, Nasu will continue to inhabit the body of a deceased person until a ritual called the Sagdid is performed. Sagdid is a contraction of the word Sag, meaning dog, and deed, which means to see, and it is one of the most important of Zoroastrian ceremonies. During the Sagdid, a sacred dog is assigned the task of looking after the body of the deceased, oftentimes before anyone has the chance to actually touch it, until either carry-on eating birds like vultures, crows, or ravens, or the dog itself, eats the body. The ritual is meant to purify the body and the soul, since once a dog or a vulture eats it, the dead flesh passes through them in the form of fecal matter. Once the ritual is performed, the corpse is no longer considered a corpse, but a hixer, which is essentially just dry, dead matter. The flesh-turned-fecal matter rejuvenates the land and forces Nasu to flee back to her home in the north, while the hixer is considered less of a pollutant and more like an empty corn husk. It's still not okay to touch the dead body, but it is far less dangerous. The ritual of Sagdid is also performed for a more practical reason. During the height of the Sagdid's popularity, misdiagnosing death was a common occurrence, so sacred dogs were used to watch over bodies to confirm that they were actually dead. And it seems like a lot of pressure to put on a dog. I mean, no offense to my pug, but I doubt that he would be able to tell if I'm dead or alive, let alone go up against a giant fly demon. But that might have less to do with his abilities and more to do with the fact that not every dog is considered a sacred dog, at least in Zoroastrianism. Sacred dogs can include hunter's dogs, shepherd's dogs, and even house dogs, but they have to be the dogs that were the closest to the person who has died. Pause. Then my pug would be considered a sacred dog. Yay! Okay, unpause. Zoroastrianism also considers animals like foxes, weasels, porcupines, and hedgehogs as dogs. And the most sacred and pure of dogs is the so-called water dog, 
or the otter. So if an otter is assigned to perform your sag deed ritual, then you, my friend, are in good hands. Or should I say, pause. It is the belief of those who practice Zoroastrianism that dogs are venerated creatures who deserve our respect and protection. This might be because dogs are considered beneficial animals who frighten the Druze so terribly that the very sight of one sends them running for the hills. Either way, detailed texts have been found on how to properly care for a dog so as to ensure that they live long and healthy lives, along with texts on how to punish those who hurt or kill them. Dogs were so revered that it's not uncommon for the ritual of Sagdid to be performed on our four-legged friends just to make sure that they are able to enter the afterlife in peace. Now, let's say I am an alive person who has had the misfortune of being infected by Nasu. How did that happen and what could be done for me? Let me start by answering the first question for you. In the Vendidad, Fargard 3 verse 14, Ahura Mazda tells the prophet Zoroaster that if someone were to carry a corpse on their own, Nasu's infection could pass on to them. The text reads, quote, If one carries a corpse alone, Nasu emerges from the nose, the eyes, the tongue, the sexual organs, and the hinder parts of the deceased, and rushes upon the corpse bearer and stains him even to the end of the nails, and he is unclean thenceforth forever and ever, end quote. Nasu also infects those who eat the dead flesh of dogs and those who participate in cannibalism, which, if I'm going to be honest with you, seems fair. Putting a corpse in water or fire also brings forth the wrath of Nasu, so that means ixne on the water burials and cremation. And burying a person in the ground not only taints the soil, but also taints the barrier now for the second question. If I were to get infected by Nasu, for whatever reason, I would like to know that there is something that could be done for me. It is entirely possible that a person could rid themselves of Nasu if the proper purification rituals are performed. One of these rituals is described in Fargard 10 of the Vendidad, where Ahura Mazda recommends the recitation of specific verses from the Gotha to fight against Nasu. Hang on with me, guys, because this one's a long one. First, you recite Yasna 282, 35 2, 35 8, 39 4, 41 3, 41 5, 43 1, 47 1, 51 1, and 53 twice. So you have to recite all those prayers twice. Then you recite Yasna's 2714, 3311, 355, and 539 three times. So all those prayers, you got to recite them three times. And then finally, you recite Yasna's 2713, 3415, and 54-1 times. It's a crap ton of prayer. But if it means getting rid of the giant fly demon tainting your soul, I think it's worth it. The second ritual that could be performed is called the Baris Nom, which consists of triple cleansing your body from head to toe with a substance called Gomez, or cow urine, then dust and water, 
followed by nine nights of seclusion where smaller, simpler rituals of a similar nature are performed. The Barisnom is used to command Nasu out of the body since natural elements like dust from the earth and water from the seas, oceans, rivers, and lakes are considered sacred elements, which is supposedly something she's afraid of. Because cremations, below-ground burials, and water burials contaminate said elements, they were considered sacrilegious and were prohibited. It was actually seen as a good thing for you to go around and unbury these bodies. So when you think about it, it's either devote your life to prayer and maybe shower in cow pee, or be forever possessed by a giant fly demon who will drool poisonous saliva into your body. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the choice is pretty obvious. Rituals like the Barris Gnome were performed in the hopes of regaining purity. But if they are performed incorrectly, there could be dire consequences. An improperly done ritual could result in Nasu becoming stronger and the contamination spreading to irreversible levels. In the unfortunate event that something like this does occur, the contaminated person is considered unclean forever and must live out the rest of their days in isolation where they can't spread Nasu's plague onto others. It's like permanent quarantine. According to Vendidad Fargard 3, verse 15, they are sent to where, quote, the land is the cleanest and driest and the least passed through by flocks and herds, by the fire of Ahura Mazda, by the consecrated bundles of Barisma and the faithful, end quote. The Vendidad also states that they'll be given the coarsest food and the most worn out clothes until they reach an old age. Even then, though, old age doesn't end the curse. To fully end the contamination of Nasu, the contaminated senior citizen must then be beheaded, with their body being left to be eaten by vultures. It's only after this violent and macabre act that the infection is gone and they are, quote, absolved by his repentance. So, I mean, definitely get someone who can do your ritual right, or else you're going to get your head cut off. So, if you can't bury people in the ground or at sea, and you can't cremate them either, how do you dispose of your dead? I mean, you can't just have dead people laying out in the middle of town forever, can you? Well, Zoroastrians adhere to very strict and very specific funerary and burial practices. First things first, the body of the deceased was to be stripped naked and carried by at least two people out of the area in which they died. This was to ensure that no one person was ever in full contact with the deceased and could potentially become contaminated by Nasu. The funerary procession would then take the body to a structure called a dakma, or Tower of Silence. These raised, open-air, circular structures sort of resemble amphitheaters and were built for the purposes of excarnation, where human corpses were left to the elements for decomposition. The roof of a dakma is divided into three concentric rings, where men were laid in the outer ring, women in the second ring, and children in the innermost ring. Once the birds were done chowing down, 
Skeletal remains were gathered by a brave view into a central pit where they could continue to weather and break down over time. Even in bone form, the dead were not allowed to be cremated. You essentially just had to let time do its thing. While Dakmas are no longer in use, having been switched out for cement-lined coffins years ago, a few are still standing, like the Yazad Tower of Silence in Iran. They're available for viewing, but only from afar. So, is that it? Nasu should be able to chill the fuck out and leave once the proper burial rites are performed, right? What else does she have to do? Well, that's wrong. It's very, very wrong. Even after all this, the path that the funerary procession took to get to the Dakma must never be traveled again because Nasu, that petty bitch, has a habit of haunting these areas in the hopes of contaminating passers-by. It's like she can't get enough. She just needs to constantly be picking on people. The only way to stop her from haunting these trails is to perform a sort of exorcism ritual on the land. To quote the Vendidad, Fargard 8, verse 16, quote, You shall therefore cause the yellow dog with four eyes, or the white dog with yellow ears, to go three times through the way. When either the yellow dog with four eyes or the white dog with yellow ears is brought there, the Druish Nasu flies away to the regions of the north in the shape of a raging fly with knees and tail sticking out all stained with stains and like unto the foulest cuff truss. End quote. A cuff truss is an umbrella term in Zoroastrianism that refers to harmful or repulsive animals like reptiles, insects like ants and wasps, and scorpions. These animals were thought to be created by the evil spirit Angra Mainyu, and killing them was seen as a good deed. I want to make it perfectly clear, though, that this is a demon based in lore, and any practices associated with it are lore as well. Animal abuse is still a crime punishable by law. Even if it's a reptile, animal abuse. Plus, snakes are cute. So, going back, if poor Fido is forced to walk through that funerary path against their will, then the dog has to walk it back nine times, back and forth, instead for the exorcism to actually work properly. So... Sorry, guys, you can't push the dog through. It's got to do it on its own. Until that happens, Nasu will continue to hang out in that area, hunting for her next victim. Oh, also, just for clarification, four-eyed doesn't literally mean that the dog has to have four eyes. It more refers to dogs who have tan spots on top of their eyes, so it gives the illusion of four instead of two. Although, the thought of a four-eyed dog is interesting. The story you're about to hear is that of a girl who just wanted to say goodbye to her deceased uncle. Little did she know that a family reunion would turn into a dangerous rendezvous with an ancient and malevolent demon. Her experiences that night would change the course of her life forever.
Tika hadn't visited her family in four years. Well, three if you considered the year she went to her grandmother's house for her birthday, but left after an hour of talking to her judgmental aunt. She had always meant to go back, but had never gotten around to it. She could never have imagined she would be back for a funeral. Tika hadn't known her Uncle Jim very well. She knew that his real name wasn't Jim, it was Jairaj, that he enjoyed dominoes and soap operas, and that he had a secret tattoo of animal from the Muppets on his left calf that everyone actually knew about. She knew that he was her mother's cousin, and that he had never had children, but it had been okay because he had little patience and never much enjoyed being around kids anyway. Looking back on it, Tika wished she had known him better. It was an odd feeling, knowing that a relative was dead, but not being able to recall enough information about the person to feel either way about their passing. She felt sad, but not sad enough, and that made her feel even worse for not having any memories of him. Tika's mother wrapped an arm around her shoulders as they made their way into the living room of her great-aunt's estate. So many relatives were filling the space that there was no place to sit, so Tika and her mother stood and listened to the family make arrangements. There was a meeting with a lawyer to discuss the will, a meeting with a realtor to discuss the house, and someone needed to take it upon themselves to cancel his subscriptions and utilities. Did he leave the passwords to his computers and phone? No, no one thought so. Did he have any appointments or engagements coming up? Yes, there was a day planner in the room, someone recalled. Tika watched her family flutter about making plans, but no one was answering the one question she had burning in her mind. Where was he going to be buried? In fact, where was his body now? Ma, where's Uncle Jim? Is there any place we can visit him? Her mother gently ushered her into the next room, away from the incessant chatter. You can't visit him right now, Tika. Why not? She asked. Had she done something wrong? Was her granddad upset for not visiting enough? Because they're doing something with his body, something that must be done privately, without our interference. Oh my god, was he murdered? She asked in a hushed but horrified tone. What other reason could there possibly be for a private arrangement? Was he being autopsied in search of foul play? Tika's imagination was running full speed ahead of her. Oh, Tika, you're so dramatic, her mother chuckled lightly. No, your grand aunt, well, actually, the entire family, with the exception of your father and I, follow a specific religion. They are Zoroastrians, and in their religion, a ritual has to be performed when someone passes away to prevent anything bad from happening to the body. Like grave robbers, you mean? Tika asked. More like grave defilers, her cousin Alex said as he stepped into the room. Sorry, auntie, but my mom needs your help with something. Once her cousin was sure that Tika's mother was gone, he lowered his voice and pulled Tika across the house into a separate room. What's this about grave defilers? Tika asked. Do you believe in demons? He asked her in response. It would be kind of dumb of me not to, wouldn't it? I mean, whether I believe in them or not isn't going to stop one from sucking out my soul. 
Alex nodded. Good answer. Well, that's exactly what Grand Aunt Mira is afraid of. There's this demon named Nasu that supposedly defiles the body of a person once they've died, and everyone here is apparently convinced that the demon is out for Uncle Jim. But why him? Tika asked. I didn't know him very well, but from what I can remember, he didn't seem like that bad of a guy to warrant a demon attack. Your guess is as good as mine, Alex said with a shrug. My mom says that Nasu is just an asshole like that. She attacks the dead for no other reason other than wanting to. Grandmother thinks it's because Uncle Jim started to stray a little bit from the religion over the years and had stopped reciting his prayers. There's apparently this group of prayers that kind of work as a prophylactic against Nasu. All the elders recite them, and Uncle Jim apparently stopped a few years ago. Tika was confused. What does that have to do with us not being able to see him? She asked. Well, because apparently, if you spend time alone with a dead body that Nasu has her eyes on, or has already infected, the infection passes on to you. So like, demonic infestation by association. And if that happens, it's total Shunsville for you, cousin. You might as well be a leper. Tika nodded. No offense to her dead uncle, but becoming demonically possessed just because she wanted to say some guilt-ridden goodbye didn't sound like something she wanted to do. So where's his body? She asked him conspiratorially. Alex walked over to a window in the room. He scanned the room to ensure that they were alone, and when they were, he peeled back the curtain. Tika looked out and saw a partially nude body laying on a low wooden table in an open area of the backyard. It was covered to protect its modesty, but other than that, it was exposed to the elements. A black dog sat perfectly still in front of it, watching, almost as though it were on guard. Shit, she whispered. Is that... Uncle Jim? Alex res- Yep. Er, at least, it used to be, you know? What's with the dog? She asked, curiously stepping closer to the closed window. It's animal. Alex answered with a hint of sadness in his voice. It's Uncle Jim's dog. He hasn't left that spot since they moved him there. It's so sad. But Mom says it's actually kind of good. Nasu is supposed to be afraid of dogs, and for the ritual to work, a sacred dog has to watch over the body until vultures come and eat it. Gross. How do we know Animal is a sacred dog? No offense, but he just looks like a dog to me. All dogs are sacred in the eyes of their owners, Alex responded. Tika thought about her own pit bull resting safely at her friend's house and nodded. So Animal has to stay out there until vultures come and eat our dead uncle's rotting flesh or else a demon is going to come and infect his body? Pretty much, Alex responded. The sound of footsteps sent them running out of the room. When they finally joined the rest of the family, Tika's mother gave her a knowing look and went back to her conversation. As she lay down to sleep that night, Tika couldn't stop thinking about her poor Uncle Jim. It wasn't fair that he was being targeted by something so malicious after he had already passed. Don't most demons want an alive person to torment? It seemed extra cruel to attack someone in death. That was supposed to be your time of eternal peace. To mess that up seemed beyond evil. A noise from the backyard pulled Tika out of her reverie and made her sit up in bed. Was it a car engine? Or a 
bus grumbling away? No, it was a growl. A low, rumbling growl, coming from the backyard. Animal, Tika thought. She put on her robe and slowly padded her way into the room that she and Alex had been in only a few hours ago. When she opened the curtain, she saw Animal, growling at something within the darkness of the backyard. His head moved as though it were on a swivel. Whatever he was hearing, it was coming from all over the place, but he never turned his back on his former owner. Tika wanted to go outside and help him. What if there was a wild animal outside trying to attack? But Alex's words rang in her head. She couldn't go out there, not alone, and she didn't dare wake anyone with the excuse that Animal was acting weird. She pressed her ear against the cold glass of the window, hoping to hear whatever it was that was making him freak out. If it was something serious, she would wake her mom. But she needed to be sure first, that was for sure. Tika waited and listened. At first, she heard nothing but the sound of the wind rustling through the trees and Animal growling at whatever he was growling at. But then, she heard it. It started low at first, low enough to be mistaken for wind, but then it grew louder and louder. Tika removed her ear from the window to see if she could hear it even then. And sure enough, she could. Wings. The rapid, flapping sound of wings. It reminded her of the bee colonies she had studied in school. But there was no way that there was a colony of bees just hanging out in the backyard. Something else had to be making that noise. She watched as Animal continued to growl, occasionally snapping at random spots in the air. The droning became louder and louder. It was getting closer. How was no one else hearing this, she thought. Finally, Animal lowered onto his haunches and directed his ire at a specific spot to the left of his owner's body. Tika followed his gaze and gasped. Before her very eyes was the figure of a giant black and gray fly. Its long, decrepit body was covered in spindly hairs, while its tongue hung out, dribbling saliva all over the ground. Its bony knees stuck out, along with its tail and chest, and Tika noticed that all along its body were various stains of decay and rot. Its massive wings buzzed behind it, flapping so fast that they were a blur. Saliva coated Tika's mouth. She was going to vomit, she knew it, but she choked back the sensation. Animal was out there with that thing, and she needed to do something to help. But before she could formulate any sort of plan, she noticed a very important detail. Animal snapped and growled and foamed at the mouth, rage causing his fur to stand on end. But no matter how close the creature got, it never dared venture farther than a few yards from the body and the dog. Tika realized that whatever that thing was outside, it was afraid of Animal. Ha! She shouted from the safety of inside the house. But when she said it, the giant fly turned its attention from Animal to her. It flew right towards the glass and then shot up right before it had the chance to burst through the window. Tika screamed and fell on her haunches. She scuttled backwards, trying to distance herself as far away from the window as possible. She screamed so loud, she was sure she had awoken the entire house. And sure enough, 
All 15 of her relatives came stumbling into the room, trying to make sense of what was happening. Tika, her mother exclaimed, pulling her up from the ground. What happened? I saw this thing, she half screamed. It was this gigantic, disgusting fly. I heard it flying towards the house. It was trying to get to Uncle Jim, but Animal was scaring it away, and then it flew at me. It came right at me, and then it just flew away. Tika's Uncle Jay strode over and grabbed her by the shoulders. Did you go outside? He shouted. Did you touch the body? Did Nasu touch you? No, she responded. I was inside. I saw everything through the window. You are sure? He asked firmly. Of course I'm sure. Do you think I'd still be here if I wasn't? That window was the only thing between me and... Wait, you know what that thing is? Remember that conversation we had today? Her cousin Alec asked. Tika nodded and realization slowly hit her. The demon Nasu has been circling your uncle for a few days now. Uncle Jay said, looking out of the window. If it were not for Animal out there, he probably would have gotten to him. The ritual of Sagdid is almost complete. One, maybe two more days at most. But perhaps it's time we move him to the Dakma. If Nasu is becoming brave enough to try and attack the living, then we cannot waste time. Tika's uncles began to file out of the room, their expressions stoic and resolute. Slowly, everyone began to retreat, while her mother instructed her to put on some shoes and a jacket. "'Where are we going?' she asked, but her question was met with her mother's infamous do-as-you're-told look, so she dropped it and did as she was told. When she met back up with her aunt and her mother, three of her uncles were geared up as well, along with her grandmother and her cousin Alex. A copy of the Vendidad was clutched tightly to her grandmother's chest. She read a hymn to the group before signaling to them that it was time to leave. Tika watched as the four men walked outside and with heavily gloved hands lifted the wooden box containing her uncle's deceased body. Tika, her mother, and her grandmother followed behind them as Animal walked by their side. The funerary procession carefully made their way into the desert, their eyes never fully adjusting to the darkness. Why am I here? Tika whispered to her mother. You saw Nasu, and for some reason, the demon left you unharmed. Yeah, not for lack of trying, trust me. Either way, you were able to hear the druge. Most people aren't able to do that. I'm sorry, I, I know you're scared, but we need you here. It is said that Nasu haunts the trails that funerary processions follow. If you hear her, tell us, but do not look at her. Do not leave my side and keep your eyes on the ground. Tika's grandmother opened the Vendidad and began to recite more hymns. The casket carrying her Uncle Jim's body rocked between her relative's shoulders. Suddenly, the droning sound of wings reached Tika's ears. As if to confirm what she was hearing, Animal tilted his head in the same direction of the sound and began to growl. Fear took over Tika's body as she looked into the darkness for signs of Nasu, but she couldn't see anything. She felt her mother's soft hands push her head down so that she was staring at her feet. What did I just say? Her mother said. I'm sorry, Tika replied frightened. Is she here? Her mother asked. Yes, she replied, holding back tears. 
The sound of fluttering wings surrounded them in the darkness. A noxious smell, like rotting meat, wafted into her nostrils, and Tika gagged. How much longer? her mother asked ahead to the men. Not far, one of them called out. Her grandmother began to pray louder, but it was nothing compared to the sound of Nasu's wings. Tika felt as though they were being stalked by a wild animal. All around her, she could feel Nasu's eyes on her and on her family. She could smell its vile scent like a poisonous gas in the air. The Druj Nasu wants nothing but pain, her grandmother said. She comes into our lives and defiles the bodies of those we love and stops them from resting peacefully. She taints the body and the soul and then moves on to cause further calamity elsewhere. We must not let her violate the body of another one of our family. We must not let her continue to break our family. Together, the group walked through the darkness, their shoes kicking up puffs of dust. All the while, Tika could feel Nasu's presence stalking them. Suddenly, the path that they were taking opened up, and before them stood a small circular structure. They had reached the Dakma. It resembled an amphitheater of sorts, but instead of music echoing from its walls, Tika heard human voices. She followed her uncles into the structure and let out a surprised cry. All around her were rings upon rings built into the walls, and each ring housed hundreds of dead bodies. Men, women, and children, all in various stages of decay and rot. In the middle of the Dakma were a group of people reciting hymns from the Vendidad over a photo of a smiling young woman. Her family moved slowly and quietly so as to not to disturb them. Tika, her mother, and her grandmother hung back and watched as the men climbed a flight of stairs and placed her uncle's body in an empty spot in the outermost ring. Tika gaped at the amount of bodies that surrounded her. She had never been surrounded by so much death in her life, and yet the feeling enveloping her wasn't that of fear. It was of calm. She felt as though she were completely at peace, and weirdly enough, she felt as though the people laying out in those rings were also at peace. One would think that being displayed out in the open to have your body pecked at by vultures would be distressing, but Tika knew. She just knew that they were okay. It was an odd sensation, knowing that the danger wasn't there among the dead, but outside where a murderous, defiling fly was waiting to strike. She didn't want to leave the safety of the Dakma, but before she knew it, her mother was holding her hand and guiding her out the rest of her family. Much to her surprise, the walk back to the house was uneventful. There was no droning noise, no ominous energy clinging in the air, nothing to make Tika suspect that they were in any harm. Even Animal looked relaxed as he trotted behind them, although the way his ears flopped down made her think he might have been a touch sad. Once inside the house, Tika took a shower and marveled at her family's ability to shake off the events of the night. She had seen a demon. A demon that tried to defile her uncle's dead body. It had flown right at her, and if it hadn't been for that window and her uncle's favorite dog, the demon would have gotten her. How was she supposed to let that go? How was she supposed to lay her head down on her pillow and not dream of that disgusting figure? 
Tika took out her phone and began to Google search Nasu and the other demons of Zoroastrianism. Before she knew it, it was 5 in the morning, and she had done extensive search on not only demons from Zoroastrianism, but demons from Judaism and Christianity, as well as those who belonged to the ancient Sumerian in Ilocano traditions. It was less of a fascination and more of a survival technique. She knew, right there, that she would never get over what happened that night. The sight of the demon Nasu was going to haunt her for the rest of her life. But if she was going to stand a fighting chance, she wanted to be prepared for any other demons that might cross her path. It wasn't like she was going to go looking for demons, but she hadn't gone looking for Nasu and it had found her anyway. She wanted to be ready for everything. The moment that Tika arrived back home to the United States, she had her protection spell tattooed to her arm. A week later, she had her other tattooed with a similar spell from ancient Sumeria. Before the year was out, the entire upper half of her body, from her neck to her hips, was tattooed with ancient symbols of protection, spells, and hymns. Tika devoted the rest of her life to studying demons and the various forms of protection against them. She helped people who were being tormented by demons and even got herself certified as an exorcist. It wasn't something that she wanted to do, she had told her mother. It was something that she had to do. Because Tika devoted every day to learning how to defend herself. But when she closed her eyes and fell asleep, she dreamt of Nasu and was terrified all over again. A run-in with Nasu is a run-in with disaster. Unlike most demons which can be exercised away, getting rid of Nasu isn't that easy. It's not like you can say some ancient prayer and watch her be blasted off into the underworld. It takes time and energy to get rid of Nasu. It takes religious devotion that demands every single ounce of your attention every day of your life. Because Nasu is different. She's a demonic heavy hitter. I mean, there's bad and then there's bad, bad. She attacks you when you should be resting. We sometimes go through life dealing with heartache, pain, and strife. And once we reach our lives' ends, we can rest easy knowing that we will be at peace. Nasu takes that from us. She takes away the one thing that we are all owed at the end of our lives. And that's tranquility. Maybe we can all learn a little something from Tika. Maybe taking some time out of our day to learn how to protect ourselves against demons and their ilk wouldn't be such a bad thing. Thank you for taking this haunted journey with me today. This is part five in my six part series on demons from across the world. The sixth and final part in the series is coming up next, and I am so excited for you all to hear this one. But in the meantime, if you want to hear more myths, legends, and scary stories, make sure that you rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor. For more episodes, also, uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Scary Stories for the Soul Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>